Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. Kelly is off this week. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. My guest this week is organic beekeeper and gardener Patrick Pines, who teaches beekeeping in Arizona. I met Patrick through a comment he left on our blog about Africanized bees. We touch on that subject as well as many others. Hi, Patrick. Hello, Eric. How are you doing? Thanks for uh, joining us. You're joining us from Arizona. Maybe we should say where you're where you are right now. Yeah, this morning I'm in Sedona, Arizona. Actually, more specifically, West Sedona, Arizona, right at the base of the Mogollon Rim, between the rim and the Verde River. Only 25 miles from Flagstaff, which is almost 3,000 feet higher than here. So, a very beautiful place, I take it. It is an incredibly beautiful place. Very cloudy this morning, and we're expecting maybe some rain later, which is unusual during June. This is our dry season. But with the rain that hit here a few days ago. Uh, before we we started rolling, you mentioned that you have a family connection to beekeeping, and that's kind of how you got started. You want to say something about about that? Yes, I do. Uh, my father's uncle, my paternal grandfather's brother, his name was Rob Pines. He was kind of like a sideline beekeeper in the Arklatex area of far northeast Texas. And he was a beekeeper his whole life. And when I was about five years old, uh, my dad and my mom and my grandfather took me down to the little jewelry store on Main Street in Atlanta, Texas, a little tiny town. And I looked through the window of that jewelry store and I saw several big jars of cut comb honey. It was actually a red clover honey. And when I saw that honey, I immediately, in retrospect, I fell in love with the bees and with honey. And it was that moment that really, I think, turned me into a beekeeper, which I will definitely be doing for the rest of my life. I was about five years old at that point and was totally transfixed by the beauty of the the comb inside the jar. And about 25 years later, I worked up the courage to actually try it myself. And at that point, actually, I was inspired by the punk rock movement, which <laughs> said that anybody can you know, be a musician. And I thought, well, if anybody can be a musician, then anybody can be a beekeeper. So anyway, that's how I got into bees. It was through a jar of cut comb red clover honey. That inspired it all. And then that 25 years later, how did you get started? Did you find a mentor or did you just kind of get some equipment and, and just do it yourself? Uh, I kind of had a mentor. His, his name is Les Crowder. He's well known in top bar beekeeping, organic beekeeping circles. At that point in time, I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Les lived down in Sabinal, just south of Albuquerque. And he taught a class at the Rio Grande Nature Center in Albuquerque, and I took that class. It was like a four-hour class. And that was really all the training, you know, background that I had to become a beekeeper. I was taking his class and being inspired by, by his example. But also I did a kind of a brief apprenticeship with an older beekeeper who was in his 60s who did a lot of swarm catching. So I decided I wanted to start with a swarm rather than a package or a nucleus hive or something like that. 
So he took me out and showed me how to catch swarms. And after about two or three weeks, I was ready to catch my first swarm and gave my number to the animal control department. And one day, probably in April, the department called me and said, there's a swarm out on the West Mesa. Are you ready to get it? So I said, okay, I'll go out and do that. And of course, I'll never forget that first time of catching that swarm on the West Mesa. I was totally, in some ways, terrified even though I think I was well prepared for it, there was still that sort of inherent sense of fear and respect for the bees. And I wondered when I shook them down into that cardboard box, whether they would sting me. Of course, they were totally docile. So that's how I did it, that first swarm. Now, on your your website, you say that you, the, the endeavor of beekeeping is bee-centric, not anthropocentric. What do you mean by that? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, my academic background is in uh, environmental studies, and I've long been fascinated by the relationships between indigenous peoples, their homelands, and non-indigenous peoples. So I've tried to understand the similar and different ways that that indigenous people and non-indigenous people relate to the land. And I think one of those ways that's kind of a generalization, but it makes sense to me, um, one of those differences is that non-indigenous peoples, let's say Western European industrial people, tend to think about the land as being something that was created for the benefit of human beings so that we can live and prosper and have good lives. And so the, the land is, is only central, culturally speaking, because it's a repository of natural resources. Whereas indigenous peoples, especially here in, the, in North America, um, they've traditionally seen the land not as something central uh, to them as a natural resource, but as a part of who they are and that they have certain responsibilities to take care of creation and of their own homeland. So it's kind of complicated, but it's basically in the practical realm, it means thinking about what is best for the bees first rather than what is best for the beekeeper. You know, ideally they should be, uh, perhaps have the same uh, importance, but in our contemporary times, I think we've gone way too far in the direction of being anthropocentric, of thinking of the natural or the rest of nature as being somehow separate from us and somehow less important to who we are. So... That's what I mean by bee-centric as opposed to anthropocentric. Now, if I were to visit your hives and watch your hives and watch your management practices, maybe we could step through some of the things that make it bee-centric as opposed to, as you said, anthropocentric. Mm-hmm. Well, even I'm a recovering English major. I have half a PhD in English. <laughs> Oh, language is really important to me. So I even claim that I don't really have any hives. I just have their hives that I'm trying my best to take care of. You know, I do own them in the sense of they are my property, I suppose. And if somebody were to steal them or try to steal them from me, I would be upset. <laughs> but I try to approach the relationship with them as being one of trying to figure out how to take care of them the best way. Um, and that, to me, is more bee-centric just as an attitude. I, I don't want to suggest that, you know, I'm a perfect beekeeper. The way that I do beekeeping is entirely, you know, 
apocentric, so to speak, rather than anthropocentric, because I do have that, you know, that anthropocentric way of thinking and doing in my background, and it's still part of who I are, who I am. But I try to make decisions about how I'm interacting or managing, quote unquote, a hive that are going to, I hope, be best for the bees rather than be best for me. So I know that a weakness that I have as a beekeeper is that I love honey as much or more than the bees themselves. So I have to really guard against making management decisions that are only for the purpose of, you know, creating more honey for me. Mm-hmm. So one one thing that happened just in my backyard apiary this year is that one of the colonies that I have that I'm taking care of that nearly died for unknown reasons two years ago um, during the winter. I think they may have gotten herbicide poisoning or nosema. I'm not sure which. But anyway, they barely survived. Um, but they came roaring back this spring. And I had to take them out of a little golden mean hive with only 18 frames and put them into a longer hive because they they just got so strong. And I was trying to work with that swarm energy, you know, mm-hmm. but also trying to use this hive as a teaching hive. So I wanted to keep them whole rather than try to divide them, you know, into two hives or something like that. And eventually, you know, I didn't succeed, quote unquote, as a beekeeper in, in uh, keeping them from swarming, so to speak. I tried to work with the swarm energy and thought I had spread them out enough to, you know, allow them to stay one whole entity, so to speak. But eventually they made the decision to swarm and, you know, I couldn't prevent that. I didn't really want to present to prevent it, mm-hmm. quote unquote. I just wanted to work with it and. And I was sad to to lose the original queen and uh, half of the bees because I, I really wanted them to stay whole. But they, they made a different decision. And I think, you know, a few years ago, I probably would have had a different mindset and I would have gone in there and, and found those swarm cells and just destroyed them or cut them out. You know, I would have tried to prevent the flow of that energy in the hive to try to control it too much. And by sort of allowing the bees, quote unquote, to swarm, uh, I feel like that is a more bee-centric way of beekeeping, so to speak. I'm not even sure beekeeping is the right word for what we do in our interactions with the bees, but it's probably the best word that I can think of that comes from the past to describe that relationship. You know, some people want to say bee stewardship, which I can kind of go along with that. Bee guardianship, I'm I'm less enamored of from an indigenous point of view because I think it's very hands-off and preservationist. It seems to think that our human relationship to the rest of nature is inherently destructive in some way. Um, so maybe in the future we'll come up with a better word to describe a more bee-centric relationship between humans and honeybees. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned this, that the language is very contentious. I was at a um, bee conference here in, in California, and the top entomologist for University of California kept kind of making swipes at natural beekeepers by calling them bee havers. He kept using that phrase over and over yeah. again. That's and, unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, I, Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, Patrick. 
Well, I was thinking, I use that word myself quite a bit. I mean, I critique as a quote-unquote natural organic top bar beekeeper living in an Africanized zone here in the Southwest. I definitely tell my students, I'm teaching you the best as I can, you know, to be a beekeeper, not a bee haver, because a bee haver just has bees in his or her place and sort of doesn't interact with those bees, just sort of either neglects them mm-hmm. or just observes them. And what usually happens with a bee haver here in the Southwest is you end up with a colony that swarms several times. And with each successive generation, you get a, a more defensive honeybee. <laughs> and eventually we have conflicts with humans because people are neglecting you know, their interactions with the honeybees. So, but from a different point of view, someone who is calling, you know, natural beekeepers, bee havers, that's a misperception and a misunderstanding about how we interact with honeybees because it's, it's a constant process of balancing between when to engage in that relationship with the hive directly with your hands and your body and when to back off and sort of watch what is happening and think about what is happening. But, um, if I had been in that conference, I would have been very upset <laughs> to have heard someone call to use that 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 term to describe what I know for a fact to not be bee having at all. It is definitely beekeeping. It's an active relationship with the bees, but it is certainly true that um, you know you can kill a colony of bees by loving it too much by opening it too often and, and creating too much stress. That's one thing I've learned from Corwin Bell's work, who I think is an excellent beekeeper, who has really taught me that there, there is a, uh, a respect that needs to happen between us and the bees. That when we need to back off and allow the bees, you know, their space and their time to, uh, to maintain their immune system. But at the same time, we can't just sort of observe and disengage from that relationship. That's where indigenous ways of thinking for me come into play because those values say that um, we have a responsibility as human beings to engage actively in those relationships with the rest of the natural world because that's the way the creative, the creator created uh, creation. You're reminding me of Kat Anderson's work here in, in California with Native Americans uh, in terms of her she interviewed some elders native american elders here who yes. basically emphasized this relationship with people on the landscape and one of the the counterintuitive things that one of those those native elders said was that um you white people have ruined this landscape basically by ignoring it by not having that 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 um relationship Yes. It seems like we have the extreme of either hyper management or totally hands off disengagement. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that split is within our culture, our, our European American culture, between preservationism, which is the sort of hands off, create the national park, you know, create right. create Yosemite out of indigenous people's lands once we get rid of them, and then. In the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, to create a, a national forest, the Coconino National Forest here in Arizona, and then cr- consider it to be a natural resource or board 
uh, board feet of lumber to be exploited forever. So we've got to find a, a third way beyond that sort of split, which I think we brought with us from Europe, and it doesn't really apply to this landscape. So I'm not real familiar with Cat Anderson's work. I know a little bit about it from having worked with Gary Paul Nabham when I was at NAU, and, and he's um, someone who's also been really interested in those relationships. Let's look at the practical ways in which we can develop this kind of third way, as you put it, with with beekeeping. Now, I want to get back to swarming, which you already mentioned. I'm in an urban area, and so obviously this is an issue with with keeping bees here. And I'm wondering if you Mm -hmm. could talk specifically about the ways in which you manage or don't manage swarming behavior in, in bees. Well, let's see. Those are great questions as far as practical questions out of the more abstract and theoretical. Swarming is definitely, of course, natural to bees as a reproductive process. Uh, Beekeepers don't necessarily like it because it diminishes total honey production. So for me, I'm not too concerned about the neighbors seeing a swarm. I've tried to educate people through the media and the local newspaper, for example, about the fact that swarms are um, usually docile to try to lessen that fear. So I'm not too concerned about preventing swarming by, um, for the reasons of, you know, allaying people's fears. But um, as I said, swarming is an issue because I use smaller the top bar hives that are usually, it's a golden mean hive that has only 42 cubic feet, I think, or is it inches? I can't remember. It's a relatively small hive. So the bees really build up very well in those hives and, and can swarm very easily in early springtime because they seem to run out of room. So I've, when that begins to happen, I just create a divide if possible uh, and create uh, now two colonies and have sort of captured the swarm by doing that. And I've also moved bees into longer hives, which is a little more of a hassle in a way. Uh, and I feel like the bees aren't as successful in the long, longer hives. They seem to prefer the smaller hives. So I wish we had a top bar hive that would actually just expand with the bees like an accordion. Mm-hmm. But nobody's invented that yet. <laughs> Could you describe that golden mean hive, what it, what it is, what it looks like? Well, the, the the best place to learn about it is to visit uh, BackyardHive.com. Corwin Bell, I think, accidentally kind of discovered it, but it's the design of it is in accordance with certain patterns that are inherent in the natural world. Uh, I'm not a mathematician, but it has to do with, with a, rate, a mathematical ratio that one finds um, embedded in the structure of the natural world. So the length of the hive is in accordance with that measurement. I think it's 1.6 to 1, that's the ratio, something like that, Um, which also has to do with the length of the top bar. So there's something about the structure. When you put a colony of bees in it or capture a swarm in it, they just really become robust. They really take off. I've got some older uh, Kenya top bar hives that, are, that I built in the 90s 
myself or bought from Marty Hardison, who was one of the people that popularized the top bar hive in New Mexico. And those are still good hives, but they're like, you know, a Cadillac version of the newer version of the, the golden mean hive. The bees just don't seem to be as robust in these other hives. And, you know, there's some design differences there that I think um, are significant. So I really love the golden mean hive that has only 18 top bars, but it has a fortunate problem with it in that the bees just build up so much energy that eventually they're going to swarm. And from a biological point of view, I don't. there's no problem with that at all. Um, but I do want to, you know, have a full colony that's not always swarming. So I'm gradually abandoning the... Uh, the shorter version of the golden mean hive for a, a hive that is about 30 top bars long, similar to Les Crowder's 30 top bar hive that he developed in New Mexico, but following the design of the golden mean hive. So one of the most exciting things about beekeeping, I think, is that experimentation in hive design that's going on in local places as we develop hives that are best suited for our own local conditions and mm-hmm. Here in Sedona, we can get away, so to speak, with a shallower, longer hive because it's hot down here during the summer, and but relatively warm, still cold in the winter. And the bees don't need a real deep space, a deep hive, a trough to get through the winter. But in Flagstaff, which is literally only 45-minute drive from here, it's a very different world, and they do need that deeper hive. So I'm kind of fascinated by the differences that sometimes subtle yet profound in beekeep in beehive design that um that we're experiencing here in in this part of Arizona where we have all these different microclimates really close together because we're right on the edge of the escarpment of the Mogollon Rim and the Colorado Plateau. And then there's other considerations with Africanized more defensive bees that can be incorporated in the top bar design as well. Yeah, maybe this is the point where we should we should talk about that. Both you and I are in, but I do want to get back to top bar hives too because okay. I, I know a lot of people have questions about that. But mm-hmm. you, both you and I are in a part of the country where there are Africanized bees. Uh, maybe we should uh, maybe maybe not everyone knows what Africanized bees are. We should probably start there and maybe we should describe okay. that. From my understanding, Africanized bees are descendants of African sub-Saharan bees, Apis mellifera scutellata, that were accidentally introduced into Brazil in the late 50s when uh, a person brought over several colonies from Africa because beekeepers in Brazil felt like their European honeybees weren't doing very well with the tropical flora. And then they were accidentally introduced and they just started to spread out all over the place and moved northward. Uh, into what is now the United States, I think, by the 1990s. And so the main issue from a beekeeper's point of view with the so-called Africanized honeybee is that they're much more highly defensive or aggressive, as some people call them. I prefer the word defensive. They will sting and defend themselves much more easily than a European honeybee, which has been bred almost like an animal breed over hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, to be pretty docile. So here in in our area of the Verde Valley of, of central and northern Arizona, we have this interesting mixing zone of 
of Africanized bees, some of which are highly defensive, and then European honeybees that have been imported into this area, actually beginning with the Spanish way back when, you know, in the 1600s. So we encounter our local beekeepers when we catch swarms or do removals. We do a lot of removals. Um, we find that the bees are their behavior is across this incredibly diverse spectrum from bees that are almost totally docile. You can't hardly get them to sting you to bees that, you know, if you look at them the wrong way, they'll try to kill you. I mean, they're really quite defensive. They're, cap they, they're capable of, of killing you if you're not wearing a veil and you happen to be working with them when, when you probably shouldn't. So, but you know, there's this whole spectrum of bees. So, uh, three or four years ago, if you know, you'd interviewed me, I probably would have said, well, I think it's a good idea for us to just maintain marked queens in our hives and they should be of European origin and we should try to get rid of any Africanized honeybees or at least avoid them. But I've really come full around to a different way of thinking and I'm beginning to think now, I've really decided now actually, that we here in the Southwest, we're going to need to work on figuring out how to work successfully with more defensive Africanized honeybees because I think they are definitely the future. They tend to sort of take over the genome of uh, European honeybees and eventually the most of the European genes are kind of flooded out. So the only real problem I see with them from a beekeeper's point of view, especially an urban beekeeper's point of view, is that they are they can tend to be highly defensive and in some instances shouldn't be kept in your backyard probably because eventually, you know, somebody might get stung. But they have all kinds of other great qualities and not all of them are highly defensive. So um, I really like the Africanized honeybee. I think we should embrace the Africanized honeybee rather than run screaming from it. That's actually how we met, because you left a really nice comment on our blog, a blog mm -hmm. post about Africanized bees, and specifically about this defensive and aggressive uh, distinction. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should talk a little more about that, because I don't know about you, but I think of a, a, a colony as aggressive when it stings for no reason, it chases you, that yeah. kind of behavior, versus, you know, my experience with the Africanized bees here has been there are some that are like that, but mm -hmm. the, there's sort of a middle ground yes. where you you know you open the hive and a couple of guard bees will ping your veil, mm -hmm. whereas with European colonies that doesn't happen. You can work with your you know no gloves on and that kind of thing. So there's this kind of spectrum, yeah, between that really aggressive and then just plain defensive. Mm -hmm. Right. I wonder if you could say, I mean, what, what's been your experience with the majority of, of colonies in your area, that the feral, the local bees in, in, mm -hmm. on that spectrum? Are they, are they really, most of them hyper, hyper aggressive or are they somewhere else there in that, in that yeah. spectrum? I think they're on a spectrum from known Africanized colonies. I mean, they haven't been genetically tested. You can't really tell you know, phenotypically by looking at their appearance. But some of those colonies that I've encountered that are definitely Africanized, they're not at all defensive. They're as as gentle as, you know, any of the more gentle to moderately defensive European honeybees. So like last winter, 
I had a teaching hive that I brought back from Prescott College over in Prescott, Arizona, that for some reason, I still haven't figured that, this out, declined during the winter, even though there were a lot of bees and a lot of honey in that hive. And about the time that the year came to an end, it was in late December, this hive was usurped by another colony. In other words, they were almost dead. They were still alive, but they had collapsed. And this other colony showed up, and initially I thought they were just robbing this existing colony. But they didn't leave <laughs> at the end of the day, and I knew that the, these aren't just robbers. They're actually coming into the hive. As far as I know, there's not any European honeybees that exhibit that kind of usurpation of taking mm -hmm. over another mm -hmm. colony. So I don't need to send this colony to the lab to you know confirm that they're Africanized and probably the lab would say well you're in Arizona they're Africanized anyway right but because they usurped they're African or Africanized I have worked with this colony several times they have never exhibited any special defensiveness I'd put them in the middle category of a European colony they're relatively docile but they do have a little bit of fire in them let's say so there's an example of a colony that's definitely Africanized that is not especially defensive. And there are probably European colonies that are more defensive than that colony. I have also worked with colonies um, that were picked up as swarms and as removals down along the Verde River, which is lower in elevation here, uh, lower, closer to the Sonoran Desert, that were the most defensive bees I've ever encountered. I mean, you're literally being hit by hundreds of angry bees as soon as you open the hive. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you weren't wearing a veil, uh, you would be dead probably or at least hospitalized. So that's, that's a pretty defensive, game-changing honeybee to my mind. I mean, we probably shouldn't have been working that hive uh, at the time of the day when we were and with not much of a nectar flow going on. But it was a good experience because it showed me the – essential wildness, I think, that the honeybee still retains. And I think that's what's so important about the Africanized honeybee is that it has those roots in wildness that the European honeybee seems to have lost through domestication. And, um, you know, people talk about wild crop relatives as being important to biodiversity of Teosinte, for example, the wild ancestor of of corn as a native grass as bringing that genetic diversity into the corn plant, at least that which is not yet genetically modified. And I think it's the same for the African honeybee or the Africanized honeybee. I think because of its essential wildness, the fact that it wasn't really domesticated, um, it's closer to the original source of the honeybee it brings that kind of uh, biodiversity back into beekeeping. Uh, surely part of the reason for colony collapse disorder is the genetic bottleneck that that beekeepers have created so that honeybees have lost some of their resilience. So from what I can tell, these Africanized bees, they don't have any problems with varroa mites. They don't have any problems with... Uh, colony collapse disorder. They don't have very many problems with uh, some of the other um, brood diseases like European or American fowl brood. They just seem to have this incredible resilience and this ability to survive 
and even prosper in this very arid environment when imported European honeybees, especially in dry years, just starve to death. And the Africanized bees just go out and find the little that's available in the, in the environment. So I really admire their their resilience, while at the same time, it, it's not as much fun sometimes to work with with bees that are trying to kill you. But, um, you know, that's who the honeybee is at some level. Um, she has this wildness in her that, to make another analogy, that I think has something to do with, uh, like, the ecologist Aldo Leopold and this famous moment in in American environmental history when he shot uh, a mother wolf in New Mexico and and walked up to see the animal he had shot, the, the green fire dying in her eyes, the fierce green fire, he called it. And he understood in that moment how important wildness is to the, the health of, of the land and of human beings who are the land from an indigenous point of view. We are in kinship with the land. So for me, I think of the African honeybee, especially the one that wants to kill you, um, as being part of that fierce green fire that's been brought back into the Americas, um, you know, to join the European honeybee that was already here because, of course, the honeybee is not indigenous to the Americas. I I heard something kind of astonishing recently. I know someone who does removals, and um, he was telling me that some conventional beekeepers whose advice has been for many years never, never, never to keep Africanized bees are actually secretly keeping Africanized bees for many of the very reasons you just mentioned, just because well, they're yeah. resistant to varroa mites and all kinds of other things. I'm wondering if going forward you see ways that we can responsibly live and work with Africanized bees in close quarter situations like cities or small yeah. towns. Well, I think, yeah, we can, and uh, I hope that we will. And so that's actually really good to hear that some of those guys are, are keeping Africanized bees sort of on the sly. <laughs> but, you know, here in, in this part of Arizona, our strategy so far has been to sort of use our suburban, urban, rural kinds of interfaces and move bees around when we have to um, that are more highly defensive. So basically... I'm keeping the colonies that are the most defensive, the most Africanized, quote-unquote, in more rural situations where they have more space around them, where it's less likely that they're going to come into conflict with with people or domesticated other domesticated animals. And But I also have some that are less defensive that are Africanized that are in more suburban or urban situations. I've got – there's a one colony that – I combined two colonies this earlier this spring in any way to make a long story short. They requeened themselves. The original colony was of Russian descent that I gotten from somebody in Utah, I think. But the new colony is Africanized, and it's amazing the way that the bees move on the comb. I've read about this, but I've never actually seen it. They're just like an oozing, flowing liquid on the comb. They're moving really rapidly. And I worked with them a couple of times, and the first time they were pretty defensive, but the second time they weren't. We had a big honey flow going on from the mesquite trees, uh, nectar flow rather. And But what I noticed in the second encounter is about half of the sisters were not moving on the comb. 
they're just hanging out like your typical Russian or European honeybee. And the other half of the sisters are just oozing back and forth, going all over the place, not being particularly defensive. And that colony is in a kind of a suburban situation. And I'm concerned for the future that the person living there, it's not on my land, um, might get stung if these Africanized bees decide to become more defensive. But I, I really want to continue working with this colony to try to learn you know, what are the best practices for working with more Africanized colonies. So that's where it kind of gets back to top bar hives because I do think that top bar hives are maybe a, a superior design for working with more defensive bees because I've noticed the the more defensive Africanized bees are much more sensitive to light and wind um, than the European honeybees. And if we keep real small light gaps at the back of the hive as we're working with them, they don't get as upset. But when they're exposed to a lot of light, like what happens when you pull a super off of a Langstroth hive, uh, they can get pretty upset. And, you know, the, the Langstroth hive was developed for uh, European honeybees. Nobody, as far as I know, was working with Africanized honeybees at that point in time in the 19th century. So I really think that top bar hives, if you want to work with Africanized locally adapted bees, um, are a better design choice. We've also learned from Les Crowder, you know, that you should not have a flat rest for the top bars that there should be that sort of edge so that the top bars can slide easily and that there's not a lot of space under the top bar to crush the bees. Because if you crush one bee accidentally and you're working with a highly defensive hive, you know, that just alarm pheromone goes through the colony much more rapidly than with a European colony. So we crush fewer bees if we have, you know, a different thing to rest the top bar on. So these are just sort of things that that the hive itself can be part of that process of learning to work with the more um, defensive colonies. The other thing is queen breeding as well and selection. I was going to ask you about that. Do you do queen breeding? Well, not as much as I would like, but I'm learning how to, to do that. And uh, we're trying to figure out a way to take some of the colonies that or down here in the lower elevations, below 5,000 feet, down to like 3,000 feet um, that are typically Africanized and and have those um, queens, virgin queens, mate with drones in the higher elevations, which are only an hour's drive away, which we tend to have less Africanization up high in the Flagstaff area uh, just because it's so much colder up there. So that's part of the strategy. But as far as actively breeding queens um, at different elevations. We're not necessarily doing that in a real conscious and systematic way, but we're hoping that in the future that that's the direction that we're going to go into. And that may or may not work, but maybe we can kind of find the best of the the European honeybees at the higher elevations and mix them with the best of the, the Africanized honeybees here at the lower elevations. So we do actively remove highly defensive queens from the hives um, if they if they really exhibit um, so much defensiveness that, that we don't think we can work with it um, we do requeen those colonies but you know we could also set up 
sanctuaries or refuges for the highly defensive colonies and, and not have to kill those queens and just sort of allow them to, to be wild. So I think that queen breeding or selection is definitely part of the domestication process that that we should be doing, that we are doing in sort of beginning steps. But I think for the so-called sustainable future, that's going to be really key is is figuring out a way to interact with the bees that are locally adapted as well can as well as continuing to bring in some imported bees and um mixing those together it's it's happening anyway uh without our involvement so we need to get more actively involved as as sort of seeds keepers or seed savers you know i i save seeds i'm also a gardener mm-hmm. and uh have noticed that those seeds become locally adapted pretty pretty rapidly. I use a lot of native heirloom varieties that are adapted to this place. And I think, you know, beekeeping can do something similar. We can save our own seeds and create our own local genotypes that are that are expressing the, you know, the 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 traits and characteristics that we like, but hopefully doing that in a way that that respects and understands the you know, the diversity of the bees themselves and doesn't try to over control that fierce green fire. Speaking of that control, what sort of management practices do you do? I mean, how often do you inspect the bees? Do you inspect the bees? What are you looking for and and how do you manage them? Well, I love beekeeping and I love the bees. So another weakness of mine, I think, is that in the past I've probably opened hives too often, which would be for me like every two weeks. I think that might be something that's good for beginning beekeepers because you're still trying to to learn, you know, your relationship to the bees. And you can't really learn by watching a video always or, or reading a book. I mean, it really has to be an experiential, direct experience. So over time, as I've been beekeeping now almost 25 years, especially in the last couple of years, I've sort of backed off a little bit in terms of how often – I um, open the hives. I think now I choose the times to open the hives much more consciously and carefully, taking into account, you know, what is what is that opening of the hive going to um, do to the hive itself as far as the immune system of the hive. So um, as a general principle, I would say I try to not work the bees m- more often than once every three weeks. I really try to go about once a month. There are exceptions to that. I have some outlier hives that I might not open, you know, more than once every two months. So it varies quite a bit, and it's a constant balancing process. But I really do think that it can be both. It it can be not a good thing to never open your hive, for example. Um, And it can also be not a good thing to open your hive uh, far too often. But I think inherently our relationship to the bees is not destructive and we should be able to engage in a positive relationship with them by opening their bodies so to speak occasionally to um to see how they're doing and you know we're also kind of seeing how um we're doing as human beings when we open up a hive and that's part of the pleasure of beekeeping is you learn so much about yourself and about the rest of the environment around you when you're interacting with the bees. And in that way, the bees 
as Les Crowder always said, and I think Brother Adam did too, are the best teachers. Mm-hmm. Listen to the bees and they will and they will teach you. Mm-hmm. But sometimes what they teach you is, you know, you need to back off from that relationship and <laughs> right. leave us alone as well. So that's what's fascinating about beekeeping is that constant feedback that you're getting from the rest of nature that you were part of and that the bees are so fully uh, engaged in and a part in. Um, there's just so much to be learned from a beehive and you can't always learn it by just watching the bees from afar. You have to learn it by opening the bees and, and smelling them and hearing them and feeling the vibrations of their bodies you know, into your own body through your fingers and, and all of that is just so much pleasure. So for people who are not in our bioregion, our warm, dry bioregion, are there other reasons people might want to keep a top bar hive? Yes. I mean, the top bar hive is definitely cheaper. It's easier to build yourself. It's a lot more fun if you enjoy watching the bees build their own comb. Um, it's easier on your back, <laughs> I've seen a lot of Langstroth beekeepers with really twisted torsos from years of having to lift, um, you know, heavy supers. So those are all practical reasons for um, keeping top bar hives. I really don't think that there are any geographic limitations to top bar hives. I mean, I kept top bar hives in the Flagstaff area for uh, more than 10 years very successfully. And these were little golden mean hives primarily, but even the longer uh, Kenya top bar hives. And it gets down to 15 or 20 degrees below zero in Flagstaff, even though it is in Arizona. It's a very high place on the Colorado Plateau. I know the the golden mean hive was used and invented in the Boulder, Colorado area. So I think the the top bar hive is appropriate to a lot of different environments. But, you know, there's definitely a a place for the Ware hive, which I know very little about, and the Langstroth hive, which I continue to use. I've used the eight-frame Langstroth hive very happily. I like it better than the 10-frame. And I've definitely started to use uh, more of the foundationless frames in the few Langstroth hives that, uh, that I use. And I actually learned about that from somebody who was presenting an oracle a couple of three years ago here in Arizona at the organic beekeeping conference, which D. Lusby hosts, and I didn't even know there was such a thing as a as a foundationless um, frame for a Langstroth hive, and I've been using those very successfully and in my Langstroth hives. Um, so I really think that I'm sort of with Gunter Hauck and other biodynamic beekeepers in in the thinking that the bees need to express themselves through the wax that they build from scratch. And we know that foundation is, is contaminated to one degree or another by agricultural chemicals. And I, I just think it's better for the health and well-being of the bees to build their own comb from scratch, whether that's in a top bar hive or in a Langstroth hive. So, I think each beekeeper has to decide for his or herself, you know, what is the best structure for me to use as a beekeeper. And that may be more than one design. Uh, and so I'm, I really get upset, I think, when I hear people talk about different designs in, in a way that is not necessarily very accurate or based upon experience. So I don't 
for example, like to say much about the Warre hive because I've never used it. But I have used um, the top bar hive and the Langstroth hive successfully. And I do see and understand the differences. And if push comes to shove, I will take the top bar hive over the Langstroth hive any day. Um, but fortunately, that hasn't happened. And I can use both. And um, that's good. Speaking of controversial topics, uh, disease management. What um, what do you do about disease management or don't do? Yeah, I guess I'm one of those bee havers from that point of view. <laughs> uh, I don't do anything. Uh, I don't use any teramycin. I don't use any apostan or whatever it is that they call it. Um, I just try to keep the bees healthy and robust and tend to their well-being and and more often than not that they they stay healthy and and you know they're good i mean i did make reference to a couple of colonies that uh declined like the one that got usurped that one had to be moved around more than i would have liked because of uh teaching uh purposes and i think i also made some mistakes as far as the timing of harvesting honey from that hive but that's another story so I do, you know, it's not like I don't have any issues or challenges, but um, I haven't lost any colonies, knock on wood, to uh, colony collapse disorder. The only, th- the only problem I've really seen in my area has been the foul brood. I've lost, I think, two colonies over the last four years to foul brood. So it's, you know, it's ubiquitous in the environment, and if the bees get weak, they become uh, susceptible to it. So I figure the only way to to prevent it from happening is to keep the bees strong, not stress them out too much, and uh, they will resist getting that, uh, that foul brood. You know, the colony that originally got it was not my own but somebody else's, and the roof on the hive leaked, and I think the bees literally got cold and wet and became susceptible to it. Um, so I, I'm being an organic gardener and a beekeeper. I, I just try to avoid managing my bees, quote unquote, and with with chemical inputs that I think are really um, not only expensive but unnecessary, and definitely not in accordance with my own values about what is proper and ethical in my relationship to the rest of the natural world. I haven't seen any problems with Varroa mites since the 90s or with tracheal mites. So um, the foul brood is the only problem that I've had to deal with as a beekeeper, you know, in my own uh, apiary. Well, in, in conclusion, I'll wrap up with one or two more questions here. Uh, what, would you, what would your advice be to people who would like to begin beekeeping and, and don't know where to start? Well... That's a great thing to do if you're excited and you really are passionate and you want to be a beekeeper. I remember that feeling. Uh, It's a great feeling and you want to sort of cultivate that and talk to other beekeepers uh, in your area who who have been successful as beekeepers. In other words, their bees have thrived. Maybe find a mentor who can be someone you can trust and go to with questions to get you started. It's easy to get it discouraged if you your first colony or two doesn't succeed. I remember my own first colony in a top bar hive was a total mess. You know, it was all cross combed. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. 
And if I hadn't been more persistent, I probably would have given up on it, but I was persistent. So you got to have a combination of that that joy and that desire and that passion along with the ability to to persevere and be patient. Those are all qualities of a beekeeper. Reading some books can be really important. I know I, I've got a whole library of books about uh, beekeeping, some of which are uh, just handbook kinds of uh, you know sources that you can go to as reference sources. Um, when I started out, there weren't any films that I can recall, but now there's a lot of good DVDs uh, about beekeeping uh, that show you kind of how to do it. But um, just uh, prepare yourself and educate yourself by by finding good people and good sources to go to, and those can be your foundation for success. But don't ex- um, expect success maybe right off the bat, though you might get lucky. It's a longer-term, lifelong process, in my mind, being a beekeeper. And uh, you learn as you go, and I'm definitely still learning. There are things that I don't understand or mistakes that I made but that I make rather and uh, but without those mistakes you don't you don't learn but the pleasures are great and uh, you know beekeeping is a really important part of of my life and you know I wouldn't uh, want to be in a world where I couldn't be a beekeeper that would be a very sad and an empty and unlivable place so I guess in short, I just really recommend that beginning beekeepers educate themselves before they begin and then continue to educate themselves um, as they go along. Speaking of educating themselves, you want to say something about your website? And I think you also teach beekeeping classes. Is that correct? Do you have any coming up in the next few months or years? Yes. Yeah, I do keep uh, – I mean, I do – teach beekeeping mostly to beginners and mostly top bar organic beekeeping practices. I've been doing the teaching, I guess, about 10 years now. I didn't feel like I had any right to be a teacher of beekeeping until I'd been doing it about oh, 10 years or so. So I started out teaching for Coconino Community College, just sort of introductory three-day classes. And then I taught some classes for uh, Northern Arizona University, and then eventually I left academia and sort of struck out on my own. And now I teach um, several seminars, usually uh, per year. Earlier this spring, we had about, I guess, about ten students from all over Arizona here at our home in West Sedona. And we have two hives in the backyard teaching apiary and some other outlier hives that we interact with as part of the classes. Uh, the name of my website is honeybeeteacher.com, and that has more information about the, especially the teaching that I do. I'm actually going to be teaching another short, intensive beekeeping seminar at the end of July in collaboration with the Arboretum at Flagstaff, which is a public botanical garden, um, and uh, Willow Bend Environmental Education Center. So that will be a three-day class, 15 total hours, where we'll be um, interacting with hives at the Arboretum and at other locations in the Flagstaff area during our monsoon season, which is usually our rainy season. And so I've taught in the Flagstaff area again, but it's been a couple of years. Um, I've taught there before, I should say, and so I'm looking forward to to doing that again. So I do consulting, one-on-one kinds of teaching as well, but my 
my main focus right now is teaching usually eight to 12 people a four-part beekeeping workshop that starts in late winter and goes through late spring so that the students can can observe and experience the expansion of a hive, you know, as it begins growing in the springtime. And in the coming year, I'm hoping to begin teaching classes specifically focused upon working with Africanized bees in our area, more intermediate level classes, uh, where I hope to sort of uh, teach some of the skills that I think I've been learning in the last three or four years working with Africanized bees that some of um, my former students and other people who are interested in that as well, you know, we can learn about how to work with those Africanized bees in, uh, in urban and suburban and rural situations. So it's all about the teaching, I guess. Honeybeeteacher.com is a reference to the fact that the honeybee is a teacher, but it's also a reference to my own role as wanting to pass along um, beekeeping to other younger people um, as we go along. So I have students actually from age 15 to age 85, and it's it's been a great experience. I've learned so much myself by, of course, being a teacher. Well, thank you, Patrick. Great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and good luck with all of your beekeeping endeavors, and same to everyone out there who may be listening. That was Patrick Pines. You can find out more about Patrick's beekeeping activities and classes on his website, honeybeeteacher.com. On a side note, I'd like to thank all of you who have left condolences over the loss of our heart patient cat, Phoebe. It means a lot to me. Both Kelly and I feel very lucky to have a blog and podcast that attracts so many kind and loving people. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple Podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.